Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid. An honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Blake Williamson. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. In this incredible episode, my co-host Andy Corley and I are joined by some of the pioneers of FACO, two gentlemen who helped make cataract surgery what it is today. We take a deep dive into the motivation and thought process for FACO back in the 60s and 70s, the subsequent learning curve within the OR, and so much more. Coming up on Off the Grid. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. I'm joined by my co-host Andy Corley today to bring to you what I think is going to be an amazing episode of the podcast and we're talking to some original FACO Cowboys here, some of the guys that really got FACO off the ground um, and made it to what it is today, to be honest. Um, we're very lucky to have uh, two guests with us today uh, to bring us way back uh, when this was all getting started, uh, uh, all the way back to the, the 60s and 70s. Andy, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, who we have with us today? Well, thank you very much, Blake. And it's my pleasure to bring on to the show Dr. Chuck Williamson from Baton Rouge, Dr. Jim Little from Oklahoma. You know, we enjoy marvelous advances now in vision therapy for patients who have cataract surgery. We live in a world where a two diopter misses a serious uh, issue for most refractive cataract surgeons today, but we stand on the shoulders of those that went before us and really went through the trying and difficult times of creating an entire new category of now the most commonly performed procedure, and that is cataract surgery. So I'd like to thank Dr. Chuck and Dr. Jim for coming on today and sharing their experiences with us. I think a good question to get the ball rolling would be when there really was no foldable IOL available or insight, what was the real motivation to go to FACO in the early days when there really wasn't the ultimate payoff of all the refractive benefits that we all now enjoy. Chuck, why don't you get us started? Then we'll have Dr. Little comment. I was lucky enough to have uh, in my residency in the late seventies, um, the example of people like Dr. Little, uh, who's had me, Jim Gills, uh, and, and people like that in, in my residency. I did my residency at the Eye Foundation Hospital in Birmingham at that time, all cataract cases that were done could be done outpatient, but only at a hospital. It was not until the early 80s uh, that actually you could do, uh, you get paid to do cataract surgery at a freestanding surgery center. So we had a 105 bed eye hospital there in Birmingham and uh, about six operating rooms. There were seven residents. The way that we were trained we uh, got to do a significant amount of surgery there in Birmingham because there was a lot of doctors that did not take Medicare at that time. Uh, Medicare was kind of considered something that people didn't fool with or some of the local doctors did. And so the residents were kind of doing a lot of that. Um, we started off with intracaps our first year. 
and did that pretty much everything. I used the Arisa fake. Uh, I used uh, uh, McLean sutures, uh, pre-placed sutures. Uh, we did all those things, making the 180 degree cuts that Charlie Kelman actually was the one who uh, invented, uh, uh, was responsible for bringing cryoprobes to remove the lens and intracapsular surgery. And intracapsular surgery basically had the advantage back then of not leaving any uh, residual cortex or residual cortical material or nuclear material in the eye. So the eyes were relatively quiet. The huge advantages of the uh, leaving the capsule in place uh, later was, of course, the protection, uh, the being able to use it for a lens implant and also the protection from the vitreous. So the second year was intracap. We moved to that. And uh, of course, we still had to do fairly large incisions, not quite as large. Uh, we were getting them out. Uh, we would you know, use a, a spoon to get under the, the nucleus and get them out. And it was a little bit smaller incision than the intracaps, uh, but still fairly large. You still had to suture that wound. Uh, the reason that we at Birmingham were able to do FACOs was that Dr. Callahan, who was uh, the head of the hospital, he started that program. He was personal friends with uh, Dr. Kelman and they got one of the early FACO machines there, which as, as uh, Dr. Little had talked, we were talking earlier, was about the size of a desk. We started doing FACO emulsifications uh, in the second year and by the third year of residency, basically, this was sort of a, uh, a progression. We were enticed to do that. Most people were not doing that in, in the community. Uh, they were doing intracaps still, or they were doing uh, a few extra caps, but a lot of people were still doing intracaps. But we were enticed to do that uh, from people like Dr. Little, like Jim Gills, like people that basically were able to master that technique. Now, phaco emulsification, uh, was it was a very difficult time for Dr. Kelman because some people had horrible results with that. They had endothelial cell loss and, and, and basically white corneas. And Dr. Little will testify to this. We didn't look at people with a slit lamp. We pinlighted them in the bed to see if you could see iris details. And that's true. That's exactly what we thought. When we could see the iris details, we thought, wow, that was a wonderful operation. It's not completely white. Sometimes the, those corneas took a while to clear. However, we still were using that primarily as a method for being able to control the operation, meaning that even with extra cap, you, you had a big wound, the wound was open, and you basically were trying to get the nucleus out. And there was a situation there uh, for a period of time where you, your sutures, which were pre-placed, you had to quickly try to tie them down in order to stabilize the anterior chamber. And the thing that phaco emulsification offered to us was a relatively stable environment when you know there was, was basically had that small incision. The early problems that we talked about early were that it was quite challenging once a piece of nucleus exited into the handpiece, uh, you could anticipate this sudden contraction of the anterior chamber. So you had to be careful where you were, where your tip was, where the posterior capsule was and where the cornea was so that uh, uh, when everything squeezed down, 
that you basically were, uh, were in the right spot to try to not hit any of the other tissues or hit the iris or anything like that. Those were kind of heady days in trying to, to use that machine. And as that machine improved, uh, yes, we did have to open it up to get these lenses in. And as, as, uh, as, as Dr. Little has said, those lenses, we could do a six millimeter incision, which was a huge improvement over uh, extra, extra crap and extra cap. And the idea was not only during the surgery, but postoperatively, we didn't have the problem of the tremendous amount of induced astigmatism that we would have and suture cutting we had to do uh, with putting sutures in the cornea because that was a huge problem. You'd see some of those old patients that had intracaps and they would have, you know, three or four diopters of against the rule astigmatism from the wound relaxation up above. And, and that was, they were always in glasses. So our goal, because most people were in glasses in the early going, we only had an 18 power lens to use. There were no lens formulas. And uh, we knew they were gonna have to use glasses. So, but our goal was to reduce the astigmatism uh, in, in those cases. But that's kind of one of the reasons the astigmatism reduction and the control of the anterior chamber that we were doing. It was a procedure looking for a lens. Dr. Little, do you remember, do you remember where you were when you first heard about phacoemulsification? Do you remember kind of, can you kind of take us back to the first time you were even told about it? And what'd you think about it? I was uh, really unhappy about the large incision uh, and the way it would heal and the postoperative astigmatism that, that, and so I was uh, very happy to see uh, the procedure that uh, Kelman, you know, devised to do, do a small incision. He actually did use a two and a half millimeter incision on his first 12 cases. His first 12 cases were people that had blind eye and he convinced them to allow him to remove their lens with the procedure of phacoemulsification. That must have been really interesting because at that point in time, Cavitron uh, had uh, uh, the dental tip, you know, that, that removed the tartar from the teeth and it would vibrate in all kinds of different ways. And so it was 28,000 cycles per second that uh, ultrasonics create from a, a generator that was fueled by plug-in the wall and it would convert it to 28,000 cycles. So his first machine he, um, was uh, with, with a needle with the irrigation aspiration was about 14 inches. The handpiece was about 14 inches long because of the 28,000 cycles. Uh, that, in other words, the size of the nickel cadmium strips that, that uh, worked by uh, the fact that when they received a charge, they would constrict and when they charge was reduced, they would expand at almost at any rate. Uh, they were just almost like fluid. And uh, so that first tip handpiece was so, so big that Charlie had to build a parallelogram to hold it, uh, the, the weight of it and maneuver it around like that. So the engineers said, well, we can make that handpiece any size you want. All we got to do is change the generator uh, and we can uh, we can go to 60,000 cycles per second. 
which made a little beauty hand piece. I mean, that would be actually cumbersome to use that small of a hand piece. Uh, so Charlie selected the 40,000 cycle generator, and, and that's the size of all the hand pieces today. Uh, but if you increase that, you know, uh, the cycles per second, uh, you can decrease the size of the of the handpiece. Well, that was using the nickel cadmium strips. Then the uh, piezoelectric crystal came by along, and it had the same uh, physical effects as the charge went through the crystal. It would constrict, and when the charge was broken, it would expand. So it worked just as well as the uh, as the nickel cadmium strips. Uh, it, even better because you could make the handpiece any size you want. You know, it's so dependent on the length of the strips had to match the speed of the uh, of the uh, generator. Uh, so you had to make the generator power or uh, speed coordinate with, with the size of those strip length of those strips. Uh, that that went away when the piezoelectric crystal came into effect. Then you could do about anything. So, Dr. Little, you, Chuck was in school and you were in private practice when FACO came along. How did you learn? What was the process for learning to do FACO? It was in 1968. I was in uh, the surgery dressing room uh, and uh, a general practitioner had just returned from Tokyo where Charlie Kelman had presented those 12 initial cases of his. And he said that that uh, Dr. Kelman was able to remove the cataract or the lens through a two and a half millimeter opening. Well, that made me blink a few times, and I so I I got a hold of Charlie, and I said, "Hey, uh, that machine you got there, uh, you know, is that available?" He said, "No, not yet. It's 1968." He said, "There's so many things we still have to work out. There's a lot of." of uh problems now that that this machine hadn't faced yet so i called him in 69 i called him in 70. I called him in 71 he said okay we got it we got it ready to go <laughs> <laughs> did you work with him in any of the early designs like did he ask for feedback or was he pretty private with with his you know that intellectual property early designs charlie did it all himself he did it all with him, him and his engineers and he would make the hand pieces. He'd do all this stuff. Uh, he was working with Cavatron Corporation then, and he would, they they made that dental, you know, vibrator thing. And uh, after we got the machine, and we were working with it, well, of course, I noted all the the problems that that machine could create. Uh, you had to really dance on the foot feet. I mean, just dance, 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 because. If you if you held it down, uh, then you could get a collapsed enter chamber. You could get, you know, break the capsule, injure the cornea. With you had to just actually tap dance on that thing to keep those those uh, problems from occurring. The way it worked is is three steps. You push down on a foot piece, and step one, the first click was just irrigation only. Step two, a little further down, that. That's number two, that's irrigation and aspiration. Then step three was introduction of ultrasound, ultrasound, ultrasonics. So uh, it would come on out of the blast uh, that was 
uh, full power, more or less. It worked. That was great when the lens was full, you know, a whole lens. But when it got down to small particles, uh, that full blast would just knock it away. You know, the, the vibration, knock it away, and had it was really difficult. So, so I went out to California and met with uh, oh four or five of their engineers, and I said, "Here's what we got to do. We need a foot feed that's like a, a car foot feed. When it goes down and to uh, click one into irrigation, that's great. When it goes down into number two, when it's in FACO mode, that that'll add." Uh, the irrigation and then and then when it goes into number three it needs to be a variable in other words it start off in position three and it's a very low ultrasound very low power as you increase it it's just like you increase the speed of a car and it gets faster and faster and hotter and, and so when you had those small pieces you could just barely get it into position three the vibration would be very low and it would just gobble those little pieces right up instead of knocking them away. So they changed the machine so that it would, uh, it would do that. Well, that, at that point in time, the, the big, the great big desk size was out, you know, it was obsolete by then. And uh, 007 or something <laughs> that first uh, did a little uh, desktop, you know, about the size of a little desktop TV. And then when I was with, uh, optical microsystems and work with their engineers we uh, actually developed a shoebox they called it the shoebox echo machine that's it was no bigger than a shoebox and it did all that stuff all everything dad i think i think uh one thing that i heard you talk about and i want you to comment on this is this this was very controversial at the time i mean a lot of the professors and sort of the old guard um were not excited about this at all right you were finishing your training right as this was happening and, and and dr little was kind of living it in the real world can you just talk about kind of what the perception was was sort of that that from the academic side and the bigger institutions versus sort of the people in private practice like dr little going out and making this actually work up to that point in time in the history of ophthalmology it was sinful to do something a professor didn't teach you to do so you were you're automatically an outcast if you that you could do something better than he could do, you know, with a new procedure. So a lot of professors were, the younger ones were more for it. You know, they said, yeah, the, we need to progress along the way. And this is definitely one. The older professors, uh, well, they didn't even know, use, they didn't know how to use a microscope, you know, operating microscope. They used loops, uh, you know, the jeweler's loops. So, so that's step one. You got to learn how to use an operating microscope before you ever touch FACO. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then the uh, red reflex uh, is a very, very important. Uh, you have to have the light source right next to the, the visual axis so that you get a bright red reflex. That lights up the posterior chamber and you can see what, all, what you're doing. Uh, you, know, you can see the capsule and you can see all that everything you need to see. But uh, there was a scope that was real prominent at the time and it was six degrees off of the visual axis. So the posterior chamber went dark when the pupil got down to six millimeters. Well, it was not uncommon for the pupil to get down to six millimeters. Uh, you know, uh, it, it was ideal uh, for it to stay wide open, but 
that just wouldn't happen at all the time. And then people that had been on pilocarpine for years, you know, they, they, they wouldn't even dilate any bigger than about three millimeters. You had to have proper lighting and, and the Zeiss scopes had that. And then I made drawings and gave it uh, to the other microscope company and, and so how, how they could make their scope work for FACO. And so they made a, a device that like, they took on the bottom of their scope that uh, with prisms moved the, the, the light source right coaxial with the vi visual source and uh, said, yeah, this, that's, that's really going to work. And they charged me $4,500 for making that thing for them. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, the, the scopes, scopes were a big deal. You know, that was a big deal, uh, Jim. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. They didn't have any at the time, except uh, they had to adapt an ENT scope, you know? Exactly, yeah, an ENT scope. See, uh, the ENT scopes had, were Zeiss, and although they didn't have the angle, you know, you had to tilt them down, your, your axis was not ideal for the procedure, but it worked. It was so much better than anything else. And then Zeiss made those eyepieces that, that uh, ang angle off, and so the your view is straight down and yet your eyepieces are on an angle here, you know, uh, to, uh, match your physique. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was all, uh, fun things. Uh, once you got all these variables somewhat under control, in other words, you got your scope the way you wanted it. You got a FACO machine that you relied on. What, what were volumes like for a busy cataract surgeon in the eighties? What was that? What were those numbers like? How many an hour? How many a week? I was booked uh, for surgery, uh, basically almost uh, almost always about six weeks ahead. I mean, I, 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 for the next six weeks, totally booked. And and what that was was I on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays I would do nine cases, uh, and on Fridays I would do fifteen. And you know, with follow-up and all that, that, that pretty much filled the week up. I came along a little bit later. And uh, when I got out, my brother had a practice. I got out. And at that time in 1980, you could not do, you could not do surgery uh, in, a, in a freestanding outpatient surgery center. We had to do surgery at the hospital. So the local hospital that we did surgery in when I got out, would make us go there and sit most of the day because they wouldn't, being the young guys who just got out, they had older doctors in there and they wouldn't give us block time. So we would have to go into a case and then come back and sit down in the doctor's lounge and listen to all these doctor lounge stories and doctors telling people. And some doctors just sit there all day drinking coffee and then they would do a, a, a belly case and maybe a, some other case and some other case. And then you would jump in and get to do another case. And then you would get to another case. It was an all day affair uh, yeah. to get that done until I said, when I got out, all surgery is going to be outpatient and we need to start building an outpatient surgery center. So I started the plans in 1980 and the approvals, I think came around 83, 84. I'm not sure one of those dates, but we had one of the first Medicare certified surgery centers simply because Medicare didn't certify you to do, didn't pay for outpatient surgery center, freestanding surgery center, paid it in the hospital. So when that, we were doing it, the reason I was doing it was I could get the equipment I wanted 
I could get the efficiency I wanted. We built a couple of operating rooms. And back then, they had no real guidelines. So you had to build these operating rooms, these outpatient surgery centers, almost like a hospital, tile all the way up and the whole thing. And it was kind of a Taj Mahal type of thing, very expensive. And we were very young guys. And then we kicked off with a grand opening, which nobody had ever heard of. And we got uh, Senator Long, who's from Louisiana, who was head of the healthcare, who was head of the finance committee. And he looked at us as young guys and he said, you boys have a big investment here. He's from Louisiana. And he said, uh, you really need to do as much as you can uh, because the government's going to get you. And I said, well, what do you mean, Senator Long? And he said, you boys in healthcare leave big tracks. And at that time, we were only about, medicine was only about 10 to 11% of the gross domestic product. And now it's close to 18, 19%. And what he meant was, is that we were expensive. And uh, what we did not know, we were hoping to pay for the thing and just be able to pay uh, the bills. What we did not know was that our surgery would quadruple. And uh, all of a sudden, everybody wanted surgery at our outpatient surgery center. So that's when the volumes took off, 83, 84 for us when we built the center. And we would, we would using two rooms, bounce back and forth. And at those days, uh, you realize you didn't have all the things you had today with the lenses. You were just putting in lenses one after another. So we could do about four cases an hour. So our goal, uh, we operated on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Uh, we did have uh, my, myself and two other surgeons. And uh, you also had an assistant. Your assistant that you had, you were paid, remember, 20% more, Jim. Remember, you could get paid to have an assistant. They would allow you because up in the Northeast, the surgery volumes were lower. So everybody would assist everybody else so that everybody could be in on these surgeries. Well, when you, we would hire, we would get a doc, young doctor out of school that would train with us and we would have him in surgery and he could do some of his cases and we would have him assisted and we'd be paid 20% more. So, so we would do, uh, you know, 12, 13 cases a day. And, uh, and, and do that uh, uh, pretty much all week. And like uh, Jim said, you, you got booked out. So uh, you start to have to increase your speed. It's amazing how much the efficiency has increased with the types of volumes that we do today. You know, we can do uh, a, a lot more uh, just because the FACO machines have gotten so much better. Dr. Little, how did, how did you keep going um, in those early days whenever it wasn't a great machine and you finally got your hands on it in the early 70s, but it was causing problems and there was complications. I mean, what I've heard about you, um, you know, your, your legend is that you were the guy that really made FACO work. You were the guy that really, you know, was able to, you know, put that show on the road and teach people how to do it and really get it off the ground. You might not have invented it, but you were the one that, you know, you didn't invent the guitar, but you sure as hell could play it, basically. We used to say that some people could talk the talk, but Jim Little could walk the walk. <laughs> no question about it. Well, uh, you know, uh, it, it was not an instant thing. I, in the beginning, I had to learn to avoid those uh, those uh, complications with a machine that, that was uh, capable of creating those complications if it didn't do right. But probably the biggest uh, 
technique was just to be able to instantly see that something was not right and get off the foot feet, you know, just, I mean, that's what I call dancing on the foot feet, not put it on, uh, go back in there slowly. And, but after we developed the uh, uh, accelerator thing, you know, where irrigation was constant, uh, and then, and then that's irrigation aspiration only, though no fake, I went in that mode, then the aspiration was accelerator used by pushing down further and further, the higher the vacuum would create. And uh, so you could control that really well, yeah, with that, those, those changes. The, the beginning, it was, it was really difficult. There was a, a steep learning curve that the guys uh, just kind of jumped in there and started doing all kinds of cataracts. And if they had any brown discoloration in the lens, that that was uh, that was an indication of hardness of the lens, and the and the the browner I got, the harder the darn thing is. And and I had a, a guy, a student of the of mine, that uh, he went back and he didn't pay attention to that you know that if they if they got the brown, then in the cap or extra cap, don't do a fake if they got the brown the browning the brown lens. Well, he, he went ahead and started, did FACO. Ultrasound time was 45 minutes. I mean, that <laughs> I like to never cleared up, you know, the cornea, everything. So the machinery got better and better and better. We, we finally figured out how to make changes that eliminated those uh, collapses and things like that. What was that like uh, once it did start getting better and better? The previous, all those doctors that used to yell at y'all at meetings and, you know, throw things, they finally kind of came on board and accepted the technology. What, what was that like? Was there ever like an, I told you so? Well, they got fewer. There were, there were fewer and fewer of those. In fact, yeah, they disappeared. They ended, up, they ended up referring a lot of cases to, to us, you know, to me. You know, when they got older and they didn't want to do surgery, who'd they send them to? So a guy they didn't least to like, you know, they'd send it to me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was great. And then I'll, I'd, I'd get over, do all the, all the measurements. I had technicians that did all the measurements, all that stuff. And, I, and uh, we, we did an endothelial cell count on every patient pre-op so we'd know just exactly how, how you know, delicate we've got to really be with more cornea. And, uh, and then send them back to the uh, ophthalmologist that, uh, and he'd see them the next morning and call. I mean, we were, big, we were very disappointed if they weren't 2020, you know, uh, the next morning. But we also send a note along and if we had a, you know, prolonged case, we could say, say we could estimate this, this would probably be 2040 for a week then, you know, before it starts to clear up. But, it just worked really well, and all the uh, older guys, inc uh, including my chief, Tullis Costin, who trained at Wilmer, uh, he, he came around. He started sending me uh, patients. But the rascal, he'd send me the brown ones, and then I'd have to do a bunch of open them up. And, uh, <laughs> and then, so then, in order for him to kind of have the last laugh, laugh he would say, well, that procedure of yours, you know, just doesn't work well 
you know that, and I know that. Uh, you, you know, you, you don't do it on these <laughs> these people with the hard brown linen. And I said, that's right, I don't. Dad used to tell me a story about, uh, even though he would do the FACO, he would still go back in and take out the, the bag sometimes. What was that What was that about, the alpha trypsin? Because the other well, ophthalmologists- That's what Jim, Jim, Jim had talked about early at people, because pre-YAG, people who were a little jealous of what Jim was doing would say, uh, once his capsules were pacified, they would say, well, you didn't, your, your doctor didn't take out the entire cataract. That's so exactly. Jim, Jim was going to show him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, when I would finish the K or finish the FACO, uh, and place the lens, I, I learned to slide under the lens and, and get a hold of the anterior uh, lip of the capsule and just gradually pull it gent gently. And, and, and uh, I, I occasionally used alpha-chymotrypsin, but I got to where I didn't really have to use it all the time. I, I could pull it and I could tell if it was going to give or not. And, uh, and if it did start, start loosening, well, then I would just bring it right on out to the uh, uh, incision site. Now then, there's all the cataracts removed. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, do you recall how much time you spent with your peers and colleagues trying to teach them FACO? In other words, you had your private practice, but I know that there used to be a real group of road warriors who on FACO were on the road every weekend somewhere teaching a class, teaching. Do you ever look back and say how much or how much time you spent doing that? Well, uh, the courses, uh, we every six weeks, uh, Sinsky and I did, and Dick Kratz did a course in uh, LA. And uh, so I would fly out on uh, Friday night. I mean, that what they would do is Thursday and Friday, they would have lab. They would have, they would have rabbits and cats and all this stuff. And the guys would practice on those. And uh, then Saturday, almost all day, I would go over all of the things or quote all the things that, that, that are caused by various actions and how to avoid those and, and just go over the, you know, the actual uh, performance of the, of the FACO. And, uh, and then on Sunday, we'd have a kind of a roundup and I'd fly home. It's the same thing in uh, Houston, at the Baylor in Houston. Uh, Jared Emery uh, organized it and put it on the lab Thursday and Friday. I would come out on Saturday and, and uh, we'd have a, we had a lecture more or less than Sunday. We'd just have a kind of a seminar, question, answers, deals, you know, whatever they, they wanted to ask about, we, we would go into that. And, and I had all kind of movies up in the beginning before we had the movies that we have now, you know, or just videos. But back then, you had to make a movie, you know, of, of your cases. And uh, so I had a lot of movies, you know, and I, regarding different things. I made, a, I made a lot of movies that I had 30. I just started up whenever I was going to move the nucleus into the anterior chamber. And it's a show getting that nucleus in the anterior chamber, then another next one, and the next one, and the next one. Just about 30 different 
cases of bringing the nucleus up, and and it, it was really uh, it really worked good, and they learned how to do that. Uh, if the, but you had to be a little bit aggressive, you know, with that uh, until you until we got with uh, a hydro dissection. Hydro dissection, you didn't need to bring the nucleus up anymore. You know, you could you could tilt it up, you could tilt the edge up and cut out a pie-shaped wedge, rotate it, cut out. Then, then, it, then the next development was really to, to divide completely, you know, just to go down through and, and make a groove all the way to the, from 12 to 6, and then take, take two spatulas and just, or one with the echo tip and the other with a spatula, and just split it in two. And it was much easier then. You didn't have all that bulk. It was much easier. And then I'd take and split that one half into a quarter and do the other half. I mean, do you remember uh, sort of the developments in capsule rexes? Because I know that uh, uh, Gills did the Christmas tree rexus, and then I guess Gimble kind of changed that to the, the, to the continuous curvilinear capsule rexus. Can, how, how did you kind of proceed with your with doing your rexus? Well, when, uh, you know, in that phase, the, the lens is whole, the whole thing there. And so when I would make a three millimeter incision, I would just tilt the tip up as I used a diamond blade all the way, or, or, well, whenever I could get it, if I didn't drop it or whatever. But there's also a steel blade to work just about as well. Then I just tip it down and go into the 12, not 12 o'clock position, but in the, in the 12 o'clock meridian and uh, in the anterior chamber make an incision and then I would go in there with irrigation and a, and a little Sinsky needle thing. Uh, it was also uh, called a spizzery, a spizzery needle. The, the irrigating, it was an irrigating needle and uh, and just guide the tear all around in a circle. Because there was no, there was no viscoelastic then. So you were using water. I mean, you were using BSS. Yeah. Yeah, I was, and uh, and and just what you did is just really watched the tear, okay? And you're tearing it down this way. If you're if you're putting pressure, like say straight down, down, the tear is going to move out toward the periphery. You know, uh, I mean, you have to. If you see the tear starting to turn peripherally, you just move the the needle or the forceps, whatever you're using to tear it centrally and that that will that will change the curve curve that tear towards the center it, it was it was just uh it became really easy to to follow what you know what you wanted it to do uh but you did have you have to vector the pressure on the tear so that it goes in the direction you want if it's coming starts centrally then you go move along in the same uh, direction as you want the tear to go until it starts to go peripherally. Actually, it all happens pretty quick. I mean, it, it, once you get used to doing it, it, just make a central opening in the capsule and then put in uh, the hydro dissection you know, and, and watch, the, watch the fluid wave go right behind the lens if the lens is clear enough. And you could see that wave go right through there and that thing coming completely loose from the capsule. And after that, it was just a 
slam dunk, you know, <laughs> kind of <laughs> completely. Before we learned how to do that, and before the hydrodissection, it was it was sometimes very difficult to get the daggone lens loose from the capsule. You know, I mean, it really was kind of likes to stay stuck to it. Uh, but, but with hydrodissection, it solved a lot of a lot of problems. Y'all have some some sense of uh, how many cases you did in your lifetime. Do you ever do you ever have a you ever think? Yeah, about I counted them up sort of uh, by, by by the yearly deals, and it was it added up to about fifty thousand cases. Between the two of y'all, I mean, you're already over a hundred thousand cases in lifetime. Yeah. Hey, Dad. Oh yeah, yeah. We had uh, had a lot of cases, and we were doing. Like in my case, I've been practicing forty years. Jim, I guess you, you started in 68, is that correct? No, that's when I saw Charlie, I heard about Charlie. No, I, I didn't get my machine until 71. So love to get Chuck, love to get, you've, you've been at it 40 years, Dr. Little, you've been at it for quite a while and you still observe what's going on. What do you think of the current state of modern day cataract surgery? Well, I think that it's tremendous, and I think it's just uh, great. I think the the the, young, the guys, uh, you know, uh, have learned how to how to really do it, and how to be careful with it, and how to turn a you know to get a twenty twenty eye uh, day one after surgery. And I mean, like, I think it's just great. Places that still do intracaps and and open wide and all that stuff. I I can't speak for those. I'm just talking about the current technology of FACO and the intraocular lenses. And I just know it, it couldn't be much better. If you got a if you get a good operator, you know, then you got a good good result. In the early days, much of your outcomes and what you were doing were very surgeon dependent. They were dependent on what kind of surgery you did, uh, meaning intracap, extracap. Uh, uh, they were dependent on how much uh, uh, inflammation you had. They were dependent upon how much endothelial issues you had. Remember, there were no endothelial cameras when we started out. Uh, uh, all sorts of things for people to get better and better and better at surgery. And then the incisions would shrink smaller and smaller and smaller so that we did not induce astigmatism. Then beyond that, something else had to occur because we were at a point that we could do 10 cases and maybe those 10 cases would do perfectly, but we were not in control of the lens technology and the formulas to get to where we needed to get to. So the problems as this has advanced uh, is in the case of a perfect case, you still have a lens and you have to choose what lens for what patient. And sometimes choosing a lens, it's more important to choose what sort of patient has what sort of lens exactly. and what sort of lens the patient actually gets. So you had to start to figure out all sorts of things related to activities of the patient, what they were doing, what they were expecting and managing the expectations. And then you had to deliver these lenses. And now the remarkable state, Andy, which of course your baby there is uh, being able to actually alter the outcome of the lens after you actually put it in because we were always chasing 
like everybody does, every athlete does, every engineer does, everybody changes. You were chasing that perfect case. And uh, the better and better they got, the greater and greater the expectations got. And uh, uh, so therefore it, it started to leave at some point, you were kind of expected to do everything in the surgery perfectly. And that wasn't like that at all in the early days. Sometimes it was, it was a uh, touch and go. But uh, after that, then the, the lenses themselves and the, the technology and started to take over, uh, which is where it's at now significantly. Yeah, I remember back before uh, we had uh, the ability to uh, calculate the lens power. Uh, we would just do the cataract and, uh, and then put in a, a set and by history, more or less. So, well, uh, when did you first have to wear glasses? Well, uh, when I was 40, oh, wait, great. You know, so you knew that they were somewhere going to be pretty normal. But so I asked this one lady, she was 70 and she had pretty bad cataracts. And I said, uh, what, when did you first start wearing glasses? I, well, I didn't, I didn't need glasses. I didn't wear glasses. I said, oh, okay, well, that's great. So I, so I figured that she was uh, kind of normal. So I put in a, the usual 17 or 18, whatever we were using at the time. And she came back in next day. And I said, how you doing? She said, it's perfect. It's perfect. It's better than it was even when I was, you know, a youngster. <laughs> she was minus five. And she had been minus five all her life. Never had glasses. She said, oh, so I can just see everything. <laughs> That's good stuff. Did you ever, you're, you're, and so that grew and grew and doing all those courses that you did grew. You started to doing heads of state and foreign dignitaries and presidents of countries and stuff. And that was pre-internet. So I don't know how people got, uh, do, do you have any stories about doing any presidents or heads of state? Oh yeah. Yeah. I had uh, what happened well, in London at Charing Cross, the uh, international cataract association thing was started up with they, So they invited 18 surgeons from countries all around the world, Russia, China, uh, e everywhere. And uh, they, they had about six Americans uh, there on the list. And uh, they had at the hotel about oh, a couple of blocks away, they had closed circuit TV and they had TV at every table, you know, at the up front. But so they, uh, so the king of Saudi Arabia sent his brother, who was at that time the ambassador to Iran, and so uh, he sent him to uh, sent, he sent four ophthalmologists to that meeting and said, "Pick out the best <laughs> Gentile surgeon." Then <laughs> my wife, to, or my brother too. So. There was some real questions about his safety that uh, they were worried about. So I heard there was a detective named Sugar Smith that was that took care of all of the uh, incoming uh, uppity ups and whatnot. And so, oh, the ambassador, he rented the whole top floor of the hospital. And, uh, and then Sugar and his detectives, they go and take 
brooms and towels and, and they twist them all around some kind of way and block the exits you know, that nobody could come in except through the, uh, through the elevator. And, uh, and then I had guys there blocking that. And uh, so that was a heck, heck of a deal. Uh, and then when, and, uh, when he went home, he uh, gave me a five ounce medallion that's about that big around. It had the image of King Faisal on the front, it said, and then a big heavy chain that I could wear that on. He said, that's the key to Saudi Arabia. And if you wear that, you can go to any hotel or any uh, restaurant and, and then show, show that and they'll build, they build the palace. So <laughs> I, my wife you didn't I, get the key to the city, you got the key to the country. Yeah, all right. Well, but then we were, uh, we were going to go over there and then they started having some upri uprising and stuff. So we never did really get to go over there. But, and they don't allow uh, a lot of things. They don't allow, you know, uh, cocktails or any, I mean, they're very strict. Dr. Little, how did you decide it was time to slow down or stop doing surgery? Was it, were you just, we oh, I did that kind of slowly. I, I got uh, a couple of guys in with me and they started getting real good. So I would, uh, I started taking a, a week off a month traveling. Uh, then I, Increased that to every other week, and uh, just uh, gradually. By 2006, well, I had tremendous investments in Phoenix and land property and adios surgery. <laughs> <laughs> do you miss? Do you miss it at all? Do you ever miss it? I learned not to miss it when I was just taking you know, like I were down to halftime, you know, there and. I enjoyed being off and I enjoyed going and going back. And I, uh, I, uh, I miss it, yeah, but wishing to get back into it, no, I really never, I never felt like I, it was a, a loss to my lifestyle. <laughs> and, and I had so many things I like to do. Some people uh, don't realize they're not only talking to a a great cataract surgeon, but they're also talking to a world champion skeet shooter. And that was, <laughs> well, you won the world championship in skeet shooting. And then your wife came in after a few years, you'd been doing it and she became a world <laughs> champion. And then I think you maybe won a championship together. Is that correct? Is that what I heard? Yeah, that was in 1990, the world championships were held in uh, Carolina, South Carolina. So we, we went there and, and uh, so there, uh, there's a number of different oh, uh, episodes. Uh, there's, there's a 410 championship and there's 28 gauge and then there's 20 gauge and there's 12 gauge. And then there's a doubles championship. That's where they throw two targets at the same time and bam, bam, bam. So there were 1200 uh, entries and 18 of us uh, got, got all the targets got the uh, hundred straight doubles going. Hundred straight doubles. Well, I tell you, we're uh, we're we're just getting uh, close to time here. Andy, I, I didn't know if you had any kind of final questions for for Dad or or uh, Doctor Little. Uh, it's been an amazing conversation. I didn't want to cut us short, but I didn't know if you had any kind of. This questions. is just wonderful to be able to visit with guys who have made a difference big time. 
in the lives of a bunch of patients. But, you know, there's a lot of your peers that are very thankful that you blazed the trail for them. And, you know, it would have been, you know, I wasn't there in the 70s, but I was there in the late 70s and early 80s. It would have been very easy to just quit on FACO because it was a challenging procedure to learn. And there was a lot of equipment involved and a lot of financial barriers. And, and somehow, some way, through the leadership of guys and other ones like you, we got there. And we've got this miracle, miracle procedure. Now, last, last week, we had Eric Topol on. And after the, after the show ended, he had just had cataract surgery. And now this is, this is one of our modern era commentators on healthcare. He said, this is a miracle. This is a miracle. I, I can't believe, you know, I can go in for a 30-minute visit and I've got the best vision I've ever had in my life and I'm 72 years old. So we kind of take it for granted. We, we take it for granted. We've gotten way too used to it. Uh, and But it's it's a miracle and it took an enormous amount of effort. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm so thankful and grateful that I was able to watch as, as guys like you just led the way and you know, went to all those weekend courses and shared with your colleagues and tried to make everybody better. And uh, it's a yeah, wonderful, yeah, it's yeah, a wonderful fact, outcome. You know, the, the, during that period of time, the, the ivory towers uh, just kind of shunned it. They, they didn't allow it. Or, uh, I finally, uh, Oklahoma University uh, allowed me to do a course out there. And uh, then uh, Wilmer Institute and uh, uh, Baltimore, they, they, they allowed me to do a course there. Uh, but, you know, things just gradually loosened up, loosened up. And more and more and more people realize, like you have, that that's by far the best procedure that's ever been available to human eyeballs. <laughs> I would make a joke when I was on the podium in the early days, as things were moving quite quickly, and you, we had new procedures and people were always skeptical. As I would say, do you know what the difference is between a pioneer and a buccaneer? The people would look at me and they'd say, no, what? I'd say about three years. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I appreciate it. And uh, Andy and I both uh, appreciate y'all jumping on. We, th we thank you so much, Dad. And thank you so much, Dr. Little. I've heard so much about you from my, from my family over the years. And it's great to finally connect and learn from you. We appreciate you jumping on. Thank you to Drs. Chuck Williamson and Jim Little for joining us for this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Until next time.